All right, Mark, Uh, we're going to be in the sixth chapter. That's where we've made it up through. If you're new to the valley or just new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is work through books of the Bible and unpack what God has said to us there. And we're we're currently in the book of Mark. That would make sense since I told you to turn to chapter six. And uh, it's written by Mark who wants to persuade us that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. That's the end to which he is writing. So Mark six, one through six. Uh, recently, I watched an ESPN documentary. Don't be surprised. I, I do love sports. And so an ESPN documentary, and it was on uh, the wide receiver, Randy Moss. And if you don't know who that is, he played in the NFL for a long time and was pretty good. And the short film was was interesting on a number of levels. But one that stuck out to me was how beloved Randy had become in his hometown of Rand, West Virginia. At the conclusion of the film, an old friend of Randy's says, quote, If you ask me, they ought to just put a Y on the end of Rand and make it Randy, West Virginia, because it's his town. The people of Rand revere and celebrate Randy Moss. Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, is not unlike Rand. It, too, is a small town. And at the time, it was estimated to have been no larger than 500 people in total. In fact, most scholars believe it was between 150 and 200 people. So it's a really, really small place. And we might think that the small size of Nazareth, coupled with Jesus' growing celebrity and that growing list of miracles, would have resulted in a reception a little bit like Randy Moss's. We would think he would be celebrated met with reverence, but what we see is he's met not with reverence, but rejection. Why? Why is Jesus met with rejection? I think Ligon Duncan captures this a little bit. He says, quote, there is a God that we want and a God who is, and the two are not the same. There's a God we want and a God who is, and the two are not the same. Thus, when the people of Nazareth cannot reconcile the person of Jesus with who they think he must be, they reject him. You see, when we encounter the true Jesus revealed in the pages of Scripture, we will love and revere him, or we will be offended by him and reject him. That brings us to our one big thing this morning, or the, that which I want you to grab onto and meditate on throughout the week as you think about this passage of Scripture. That is to encounter Jesus. Encounter Jesus. We're going to work through the text in three parts. What astonishes the people in verses 1 and 2. What offends the people in verse 3. And what amazes Jesus in verses 4 through 6. What astonishes the people, what offends the people, and what amazes Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Advent season, during which we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, our wonderful Savior. We ask that you would rescue us from sentimental and predictable Things that that just kind of take away from the true nature of this season. God, I ask that you would bring familiar scriptures alive in fresh ways. That you would reshape how we do the Christmas season by the power 
of your word. God, I ask this morning that you would refocus our attention on Jesus and on the fact that his appearing, dying, rising, and reappearing at the end of the age are underneath every text of the Bible. Father, remind us that every passage of Scripture whispers the name of Jesus, that every text points us forward to the cross and an empty tomb and an occupied throne. Father, that every text points us to the rescuing of your people and to your thrice holiness, to your glory, the glory of the wonderful God who has loved us. And called us to himself. Father let us encounter you this morning. This is our prayer. Amen. So let's look at what astonishes the people. Verse 1 of chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished saying. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Jesus had indeed been doing very many miracles. He'd healed Peter's mother-in-law, along with others. He'd cleansed a leper. He'd made a paralyzed man walk. He cured a deformed man's withered hand. He calmed a storm with his word. He cast out demons from the demoniac or demoniacs. He stopped the chronic bleeding of a nameless woman and he resurrected a dead girl. And so now he travels home to Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he begins teaching. And surely the people of his hometown had heard about the great things that he had done. And as they listen to his teaching, they are astonished. He's teaching as one with authority. He's teaching a message that says the kingdom of God has come and it is growing. A message that commands repentance from sin and belief in Jesus himself. It's a message that says, turn from yourself, your wrongdoings, your way of doing life, and turn towards God. Believe in the gospel and live your life God's way. See, it's a message that upsets the apple cart and causes men and women alike to squirm. Try to find a way out from underneath the authority of Jesus' word. And so people disbelieve him. They reject him. Some squirm into skepticism. I think Jesus' message challenges those that hear it with his person. Because when you encounter the message of the gospel, you encounter Jesus. The people of Nazareth hear of Jesus' miracles, and they listen to his message. But their skepticism will not allow them to believe. They say things like, how does he know this stuff anyway? When did he become so wise? How did he get so smart? These miracles can't be true. After all, he's just a nobody from Nazareth like the rest of us. We know his brothers and his sisters. Why does he think he's so special? He's just like us. Actually, he might be worse because, after all, he's just a a bastard born to a whore. These folks have encountered Jesus. They're skeptical. Which gives credence to the fact that the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only 
a carpenter, the son of Mary. Perhaps you share some of the skepticism of the people in Jesus' hometown. Perhaps you share some of the skepticism of his relatives and even his own family. Maybe you ask some of their same questions. How could God become a man? These miracles have to have a scientific explanation that couldn't have happened the way the Bible says. Jesus was a, a wise teacher, but there's no way he has any claim on my life. 2,000 years ago, even those that lived at the same time as Jesus witnessed his death and resurrection shared in the same skepticism, despite overwhelming evidence. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but our generation, this generation is not the first to think. A Jew from nowhere executed unjustly is the savior and only savior of the world? Impossible. There is no way that's true. I'm offended that you would even suggest such a thing. Something so ridiculous. If you're a skeptic, I want you to dismiss all the false and silly cultural portrayals of Jesus. And to consider the evidence of his resurrection objectively. I think a couple good resources for you to examine the historicity of the resurrection and the validity of the Christian worldview is uh, N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God and Timothy Keller's The Reason for God, which we've been studying through at our Bible study on Monday nights, and we're going to finish that up tomorrow night at 7.30 next door. We're going to examine the question, how can God be full of wrath and full of love and mercy at the same time? There are many arguments to be made and questions to be asked and answered, but the Christian faith ultimately depends upon the truth of Jesus raising from the dead. I mean, if he didn't raise, he doesn't matter. He didn't matter, he doesn't matter. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. See, Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Christianity is the only world religion that is built on the belief that its founder is God. All the other world religions are, are centered around people that tell other people about God. But Christianity says God has come to tell us about himself, himself. He's come to take the penalty of death that we deserve himself. He's going to reconcile us to himself. He's going to raise us up to live eternally with himself. That He does all the work in salvation. That it's not about how good we are, but about how good he is. Those of us that are united to Jesus by faith believe that God became a man, lived a perfect life on our behalf, was crucified for our wrongdoings, and buried. And we believe that on the third day, he rose from the grave to prove the truth of who he is and what he taught. Sometimes I think it's weird that we wear crosses to remember Jesus, that instead we should probably wear a tomb of some type. Because if he just died on the cross and that was the end of the story, his death wouldn't have mattered. It's the resurrection. He raises and proves who he is, who he was, proves the validity of his message. I do want to also bring your attention to that it, in most all religions, when a, a religious leader dies, they're enshrined. And oftentimes the place they visited 
or lived or, or the things they touched turn into to relics or, or shrines, places that people visit. For example, in Islam, the prophet Muhammad's tomb has become a shrine that many visit. But in Christianity, we don't have that. Did you know we don't know where the tomb of Jesus is? I mean, sure, if you go to Jerusalem, someone will, will take your money and gladly take you to the tomb of Jesus. But it's not his actual tomb. No one knows where it is because he isn't in it. I mean, let's illustrate it this way. When a parent walks into a child's room and finds shoes on the floor and clothing on the fan blades and toys thrown about, typically they're a little bit annoyed, even a little bit angry. And they say something or think something along the lines of, how many times have I told you to pick up your shoes and put your toys away, to fold your clothes and put them in the dresser drawer? But if that same parent tragically loses their child and then walks into the room, everything is different. The shoes on the floor are, oh, these were his shoes. These were her toys. And the room becomes a, almost a shrine. It's left untouched as a reminder of the person who used to live there. You see, the room isn't sacred while the child is living because they're with the parent. Likewise, there's no shrine of Jesus' tomb because at the time he was alive and with his people. And today he's alive and with his people. His followers didn't go to where he was buried and make it a sacred place of a wise teacher. No, they had Jesus with them. They could touch him. They knew he was alive. So there was no need to make a big deal about his temporary grave. Throughout the scripture, we're told that Jesus appears to many four weeks after his resurrection. Paul mentions his appearing to about 500 people at once. I mean, listen to this section of Acts. This is Paul before King Agrippa. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, Paul. But Paul said, not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Festus, I don't know. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. The resurrection didn't happen in a corner. It wasn't secret. It was out in the public for all to see. Paul is called crazy for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And he responds, these things weren't done in secret. They weren't done in a corner. He says, ask around. We've seen it for ourselves. It's true. The gospel is true. This helps us see that apart from eyes of faith, no one will see Jesus for who he truly is. Jesus' miracles point to him. There are divinely ordained signs declaring in capital letters, this one is the Messiah. This one is the Son of God. Believe him. Follow him. If you're a, a non-Christian, a true 
skeptic, I, I challenge you to be skeptical of your own skepticism. I mean, put, put the same weight that you put on Christianity, on your own worldview and philosophy. I challenge you to consider the evidence for the resurrection. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he really is God and he really did rise from the grave, what does that mean for your life? Everything means change. The non-Christian skeptics of Nazareth knew exactly what the truth of Jesus' message meant for their lives. They knew it meant everything. They knew it meant change, and thus they were offended by him. So let's look at what offends the people. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Judas, and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. When you encounter Jesus, you will experience him, revere him, love him, repent and follow him. Or you'll be offended by him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing, but to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. And he continues in verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The message of the cross is a stumbling block. People have a hard time getting over it because it declares in bold letters, you are wrong and you need a savior. You can't save yourselves. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourself right with God. You need the act of another. You need Jesus. The message of the gospel calls us to repent and follow him. It's offensive to our self-esteem. The gospel tells us our beliefs are wrong, that we do wrong, and that only Jesus can make us right. The the people of of Nazareth and people today are scandalized by this message. People are appalled by the gospel because Jesus hurts their feelings. The gospel hurts your feelings. Let's be honest. Let's just talk. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong the gospel hurts our feelings in fact most today that are upset by the gospel message will even label it as hate speech indeed the gospel has always been an assault on the world's most popular religion which is selfism and selfism has as its foundational doctrine it's all about me that's its mantra Followers of this faith determine right and wrong for themselves and live for themselves. And ultimately, those that are committed to selfism worship themselves. Or a false god that they've conjured up in their own image, a god that never contradicts them. And a god that that never contradicts what you feel or think, a god that can never contradict you, is no god at all. No God at all, but an idol fashioned after yourself. I mean, haven't haven't you ever read something in Scripture that was really, really hard? For those of you that are following Jesus, 
and gone, I have to reshape my heart, my thinking after what God says is right. I feel like this other thing is right. But that's not what the word of God says. I must submit myself to how God says life works best. I need to be honest here too. Selfism, I think, is the default position of our hearts. You know, that the, uh, the default position is to think only about ourselves and to position ourselves in God's place. And I, I'm as guilty of it as, as anyone. And we all have this inward bent. There's a fancy Latin phrase I can't remember that Luther used to talk about it, but it meant to look in on yourself. I think that we all have this desire to be the captain of our own souls, the master of our destiny. <laughs> Recently, I was visiting... One of my grandmothers, when I was at home, and her name's Betty, and uh, Betty has is, is been in the hospital recently. She, she has MS and, and a myriad of, of other issues, but she's one of the most kind-hearted women I've ever been around, and I just love her deeply. But uh, she'd been offered, like, juice. When you're, you know, if you're in a hospital bed and you're a little older, people try to make you drink and make you feel better. And so they'd offered her juice, like, a hundred times. And she'd sipped on it a little bit. And they kept offering it to her. And she kept saying, no, thank you. Kept offering it to her. So finally, they offer it to her. And, and she says, no, thank you. And then she looks over at me. And she, she cracks this jovial smile. And she quips, they're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. I said, I'm never going to get over that, right? You're not the boss of me. And she, she was joking, and, and I laughed, of course. But, but I think that her words were laced and are laced with a subtle truth. Apart from Jesus, the cry of our hearts is, You're not the boss of me. Don't try to tell me what to do. I define myself. But when we place our faith in Jesus, the cry of our hearts becomes, Oh Lord, please be my God. You are the boss of me. You know what's best. The gospel has a way of shaking us awake so that we know what it is to finally be alive. The gospel gives us eyes of faith, enabling us to order our lives rightly so that God is seated on the throne and we are kneeling at his feet submissive to his way of doing life rather than our own. That's why it's crucial for us to remember the gospel so that we don't allow our hearts to go into that default mode of worshiping ourselves and trying to push God from the throne. The gospel reminds us to worship and follow the lead of Jesus, who is certainly more than an example. He's, he's God, but he's not less than our example. He was the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Away in a manger. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Holy Spirit enables us to live godly lives modeled after Jesus and to have the mind of Christ so that we can live out Philippians 2 and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. That each of us can look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're made a new creation. 
A new creation with this Philippians 2 DNA. Do you have this DNA? Is that your mindset? Is that how you're living your life? Thinking about others rather than yourself. Thinking about how you can live your life in a way that's pleasing to God. Sin is still present in followers of Christ, but it does not rule. The message of the gospel it doesn't just get us started in the Christian life. We need it every day, every moment. It doesn't just get us started. The gospel sustains us. Because as Luther said, all of life is repentance. All of life is believing that gospel moment by moment. It's a continual effort and struggle against sin where we're turning from what our sinful desires are, turning from our way of doing things towards God's way. Never graduate from the gospel. We're continually battling against our sin as we seek to follow Jesus more closely. We're prone to forget the gospel, prone to wander. And when we forget the gospel, we almost immediately return to selfism. When we forget the gospel, we almost immediately return to ourselves. Followers of selfism understand the gospel to be hate speech because it undermines them. Jesus' message offends because it says you are wrong and it demands change. Jesus' message requires you to stop believing in yourself and start believing in him. People don't like to be told that they're wrong. People don't like to change. That's why the herdsmen, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 5, all their pigs had run down over the hill and drowned themselves after Jesus had cast them out from the demoniac. That's why they get mad at Jesus and ask him to leave. They love their pigs more than people. They knew what his power meant. They knew what his message meant. It meant they would have to change. They didn't want to change. It's why the Pharisees hated Jesus and sought to kill him. He was overthrowing the false hope people put in self-salvation or self-justification. He was saying, it's not the wealthy who are saved, but the weak. It's not the powerful that are saved, but the poor. It's not the good people that are saved, but those that understand they are bad. Gospel is exclusive. It's exclusive because it says no good people allowed. Only the poor in spirit. Only those that bring nothing before God and say, I plead the blood of Christ. I can't do it on my own. Gospel is exclusive, but it's also inclusive. It excludes all those who depend on themselves and their own good works. But it includes all that will humbly come to Jesus, confess Jesus, and believe in Jesus. People don't like to be told they're wrong and people don't like to change. So when Jesus says, repent and follow me, you're wrong, you must change. People don't like it. They take offense at him. How about you? Are you offended by Jesus? Or are you experiencing his transformative power? Do you love and revere Jesus? Or do you reject him? Verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and among his relatives 
and then his own household. This is a proverb that Jesus makes famous. He's aligning himself with the many prophets that had gone before him to Israel and had been rejected before him. He's also acknowledging that those who should have known him best, those closest to him, did not know him and rejected him. I think Dr. Aiken is helpful here. He says this, Sometimes we spend time with someone, so much time, that we no longer appreciate them. For those of us that are raised in a Christian environment, this is certainly an ever-present danger that we must guard against. In a sense, we should never get comfortable with Jesus. His goal isn't to make us comfortable. His goal is to bring us to repentance and faith. He's not your homeboy. He's not your buddy. He's not your soulmate. He's not a genie in a bottle obligated to grant your every wish. No. Nor is he some ordinary guy who lived 2,000 years ago, stirred things up for a few years, and got nailed to a cross for his troubles. His hometown got it wrong. His relatives, at least for a little while, got it wrong. The religious leaders got it wrong. Rome got it wrong. And still today, people get Jesus wrong. The people of Nazareth reject Jesus. His relatives reject him. And his own family rejects him. This rejection of Jesus by those closest to him anticipates his ultimate rejection on the cross. Even now, the chill of the shadow of the cross can be felt. Jesus is headed to Calgary's hill. Where he will experience the rejection we deserve. So that we can be accepted. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. These verses are really interesting and give rise to all kinds of questions. And we're going to get there. But first, look with me at Jesus marveling or being amazed. Did you know that Jesus only marvels or is only amazed twice in all of Scripture? In Luke 7, 9, he saw the faith of a Roman centurion who believed he could heal from a distance with just a word. And here he's amazed at the unbelief of those closest to him. He's amazed by the faith of a man that hardly knows him and by the unbelief of the people that should know him best. This shows us that exposure to Jesus and the gospel is no guarantee of faith. Indeed, apart from faith, Exposure to the gospel inoculates or hardens us as often as it enlivens. God desires that all men would hear the gospel and respond to Jesus with faith. But men reject him. In fact, Jesus delights in rewarding faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And he rewards those that seek him. Those that do not draw near to God do not believe and thus they do not enjoy the reward. And so we read in verse 5, 
And he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Matthew records it this way in the parallel account. It's chapter 13, verse 58 of his book. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Aiken writes, he could do no mighty works because he would not in the face of blatant unbelief. Keller adds, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could not do a deed that would not redeem. You see, Jesus' miracles are always done with the goal of relationship. His miracles are meant to deepen intimacy with himself. When miracles will not serve the purpose of deepening relationship, Jesus does not do them. Because he will not reward unbelief. Let me say it more simply. Jesus can only heal you. He can only make you whole if you follow him by faith. I think Naaman serves as an excellent example here. Y'all remember Naaman? In case you don't, I'll uh, tell you a story right quick. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. You can read it this week for homework. Brush up on your your Naaman and your 2 Kings a little bit. Homework assignment. Going to check it next week. Naaman is the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He's kind of a big deal. He's described as a great man, a mighty man of valor. And a leper. Now in one of his raids on Israel. Naaman abducts a little girl. And this little girl ends up in service to him and his wife. She becomes aware of Naaman's leprosy. And instead of being bitter and angry. And kind of going. I can't wait till his fingers start to fall off. Can't wait till he dies. He deserves to for abducting me. She has mercy on him. She becomes aware of his ailment and she says to him, hey, did you know there's a prophet in Israel that can cure leprosy? You should go to him and be healed. So Naaman goes to Israel. And eventually he's told by the prophet Elisha, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And we read. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. Are not, some rivers I can't pronounce, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Saying the the waters that I was close to, aren't they cleaner than the Jordan? It's dirty. Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. You see, Naaman heard of the prophet. 
He was offended by the prophet's message to him. Go be cleaned in the Jordan. Wash seven times. Be clean. And David said, no, that's offensive to me. Don't you know how big of a deal I am? You just want me to wash in the river? Any commoner could wash in the river. I'm not going to do it. He was enraged by this response. And so he began to walk away, still a leper, without healing. Friends, unbelief is never rewarded. Never. But before he had gone too far in his unbelief, Servants are able to persuade him to believe in God's message from Elisha. So he goes in faith, even though it's weak faith. Remember, it's not the amount of our faith that saves, but the object of our faith. He goes in faith, washes, and is made clean. This miracle doesn't just terminate with Naaman's joy over being cured from leprosy. No, he gets more than he bargained for. He finds himself in a loving relationship with the God of the universe. This is the pattern that we have seen. Jesus does the miraculous and he heals both physically and spiritually in response to faith. See, Naaman's condition of leprosy was impossible. Leprosy wasn't healed in his day. The nameless woman that we looked at last week, her condition was impossible. She had been bleeding for 12 long years without any hope of getting better. Even though she spent all her money on doctors, her condition was impossible. The daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, her condition was impossible. She was dead. Your condition is impossible. You have the chronic sickness of sin and selfism. Its scales, its scales cover you. Spiritually, you are dead in your sins apart from Christ. You're separated from an infinitely holy God because you've inherited sin and tried to usurp God by living your way and according to your agenda instead of in submission to him. Because God is good, because he is just, he cannot just let sin go unpunished. Justice requires recompense. It requires payment for wrongdoing. In this case, any rebellion or wrongdoing against an infinitely holy God requires infinite punishment. Punishment must fit the crime. Your condition is impossible. But God has loved you contrary to your condition. He loves you, doesn't love you unconditionally. He loves you contra-conditionally. Despite your impossible, sinful condition, despite all the bad things that you've done, God so cares for you that he sent his son who came willingly To take your punishment for you. Jesus is rejected. Treated as one without honor by his family and his friends. He's abandoned by his followers on the cross. For you. On the cross, Jesus experiences separation from God. He takes hell so that you can have heaven. He experiences separation from God so that you can be in relationship with God. The cross is where God's justice and his mercy kiss. 
The cross displays to us both our impossible condition and the remedy for that condition, the blood of Christ. Jesus heals, makes whole, completes, gives peace, gives life and joy only in response to faith. He offers it freely, but you can only get it by faith. Only when you stop being offended and start repenting and believing will you encounter the real Jesus. Everyone that meets him loves him. His grace is irresistible. Once you taste and see that the Lord is good, everything else is dull and bland in comparison. If you've been a Christian a long time, I implore you, don't become callous or familiar, or immune to the gospel. Don't become overly familiar with Christmas. Don't become overly familiar so that Jesus' words no longer correct you. His miracles no longer astonish you. And His death on the cross no longer strikes that chord of amazing grace in your heart. Jesus was without honor in his hometown. Let us not make the same mistake in our own hearts. Exhort you this morning. Move past the offense of the gospel. And experience the God of grace. Friends. Encounter Jesus. Amen.